Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. I'm your host, Tyler, and today we'll be reading Chapter 2 of The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. It was a good day today, actually. I um, got some laundry done. Speaking of, I think I forgot some laundry in the dryer. I will pick that up uh, after I finish reading this. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Chapter 2. A Beautiful Day It was one of those perfect autumn days, so common in stories and so rare in the real world. The weather was warm and dry, ideal for ripening a field of wheat or corn. On both sides of the road, the trees were changing color. Tall poplars had gone a buttery yellow, while the shrubby sumac encroaching on the road was tinged a violent red. Only the old oaks seemed reluctant to give up the summer, and their leaves remained an even mingling of gold and green. Everything said, you couldn't hope for a nicer day to have a half-dozen ex-soldiers with hunting bows relieve you of everything you owned. She's not much of a horse, sir, Chronicler said. One small step above a dray, and when it rains, she, the man cut him off with a sharp gesture. Listen, friend, the king's army is paying good money for anything with four legs and at least one eye. If you were stark mad and riding a hobby horse down the road, I'd still take it off you. The leader had an air of command about him. Chronicler guessed he had been a low-ranking officer not long ago. Just hop down, he said seriously. We'll get this done with, and you can be on your way. Chronicler climbed down from his horse. He had been robbed before and knew when um, there was nothing to be gained by discussion. These fellows knew their business. No energy was wasted on bravado or idle threats. One of them looked over the horse, checking hooves, teeth, and harness. Two others went through his saddlebags with a military efficiency, laying all his worldly possessions out on the ground. Two blankets, a hooded cloak, a flat leather satchel, and his heavy, well-stocked travel sack. That's all of it, Commander, one, man, one of the men said, except for about twenty pounds of oats. The commander knelt down and opened the flat leather satchel, peering inside. There's nothing but paper and pens in there, Chronicler said. The commander turned to look backward over his shoulder. You a scribe, then? Chronicler nodded. It's my livelihood, sir, and no real use to you. The man looked through the satchel, found it to be true, and set it aside. Then he upended the travel sack onto Chronicler's spread cloak and poked idly through the contents. He took most of Chronicler's salt and a pair of bootlaces. Then, much to the scribe's dismay, he picked up the shirt Chronicler had bought back in Linwood. It was fine linen, fine linen dyed a deep royal blue, too nice for traveling. Chronicler hadn't even had the chance to wear it yet. He sighed. The commander left everything else lying on the road. Sorry, not lying on the road. <clears throat> the commander left everything else lying on the cloak and got to his feet. The others took turns going through Chronicler's things. The commander spoke up. You only have one blanket, don't you, Jans? One of the men nodded. Take one of his, then. You'll need a second before winter's through. His cloak is in better shape than mine, sir. 
Take it, but leave yours. The same for you, Whitkins. Leave your old tinder tinderbox if you are taking his. I lost mine, sir, Whitkins said. Else I would. The whole process was surprisingly civilized. Chronicler lost all of his needles but one, both extra pairs of socks, a bundle of dried fruit, a small loaf of sugar, half a bottle of alcohol, and a pair of ivory dice. They left him the rest of his clothes, his dried meat, and a half-eaten loaf of incredibly stale rye bread. His flat leather satchel remained untouched. While the men repacked his travel sack, the commander turned to Chronicler. Let's have the purse, then. Chronicler handed it over. And the ring. There's hardly any silver in it, Chronicler mum mumbled as he unscrewed it from his finger. What's that around your neck? Chronicler unbuttoned his shirt, revealing a dull ring of metal hanging from a leather cord. Just iron, sir. The commander came close and rubbed it between his fingers before letting it fall against back against the chronicler's chest. Keep it, then. I'm not one to come between a man and his religion, he said, then emptied the purse on, on to, into one hand, making a pleasantly surprised noise as he prodded through the coins with his finger. Scrapping pays better than I thought, he said, as he as he began to count out shares to his men. I don't suppose you could spare me a penny or two out of that, Chronicler asked, just enough for a couple of hot meals. The six men turned to look at Chronicler as if they couldn't quite believe what they had heard. The commander laughed. God's body, you certainly have a heavy pair, don't you? There was a grudging respect in his voice. You seem a reasonable fellow, Chronicler said with a shrug, and a man's got to eat. Their leader smiled for the first time, a sentiment I can agree with. He took out two pennies and brandished them before putting them back into Chronicler's purse. Here's a pair for your pair, then. He tossed the Chronicler, he cro he tossed Chronicler the purse and stuffed the beautiful royal blue shirt into his saddlebag. Thank you, sir, Chronicler said. You might want to know that the that that bottle one of your men took is wood alcohol I use for cleaning my pens. It'll go badly if he drinks it. The commander smiled and nodded. You see what comes of treating people well, he said to his men as he pulled himself up to his onto his horse. It's been a pleasure, sir scribe. If you get on your way now, you can still make Abbott's Ford by dark. When Chronicler could no longer hear their hoofbeats in the distance, he repacked his travel sack, making sure everything was well stowed. Then he tugged off one of his boots, stripped out the lining, and removed a tightly wrapped bundle of coins stuffed deep into his t into the toe. He moved some of these into his purse, then unfastened his pants, produced another bundle of coins from underneath several layers of clothes, and moved some of that money into his purse as well. The key was to keep the proper amount in your purse. Too little, and they would be disappointed and prone to look for more. Too much, and they would be excited and might get greedy. There was a third bundle of coins baked into the stale loaf of bread that only the most desperate of criminals would be interested in. He left that alone for now, as well as the whole silver talent he had hidden in a jar of ink. Over the years he had come to think th of the last as more of a luck piece. No one had ever found that. He had to admit, it was probably the most civil robbery he'd ever been through. They had been genteel, efficient, and not terribly savvy. Losing the horse and saddle was hard, but... He could buy another in Abbott's Ford and still have enough money to live comfortably until he finished this foolishness and met up with Scarpy in Treya. 
feeling an urgent call of nature, Chronicler pushed his way through the blood-red sumac at the side of the road. As he was rebuttoning his pants, there was sudden motion in the underbrush as a dark shape thrashed its way free of some nearby bushes. Chronicler staggered back, crying out in alarm before he realized it was nothing more than a crow beating its wings into flight. Chuckling at his own foolishness, he straightened his clothes and made his way back to the road through the sumac, brushing away invisible strands of spiderweb that clung tickling to his face. As he shouldered his travel sack and satchel, Chronicler found himself feeling remarkably light-hearted. The worst had happened, and it hadn't been that bad. A breeze tussled through the trees, sending poplar leaves spinning like golden coins down onto the dirt, on, onto the rutted dirt road. It was a beautiful day. <laughs> you know that that really was a rather um, civil robbery, wasn't it? They were just like, all right, you know, get off your horse and come on, come on. We don't want to have to bother with getting all violent and angry with you. <clears throat> that was a short chapter, so I'm going to go ahead and read chapter three. Three, Wood and Word. Coat was leafing idly through a book, trying to ignore the silence of the empty inn when the door opened and Graham backed into the room. Just got done with it, Graham maneuvered through the maze of tables with exaggerated care. I was going to bring it in last night, but then I thought, one last coat of oil, rub it, and let it dry. Can't say I'm sorry I did. Lord and lady, it's beautiful as anything these hands have ever made. A small line formed between the innkeeper's eyebrows. Then seeing the flat bundle in the man's arms, he brightened. Ah, the mounting board. Coat smiled tiredly. I'm sorry, Graham. It's been it's been so long I'd almost forgotten. Graham gave him a bit of a strange look. For a month ain't long for wood all the way from Ariane. Not with the roads being as bad as they are. Four months, Coat echoed. He saw Graham watching him and hurried to add, That can be a lifetime if you're waiting for something. He tried to smile reassur reassuringly, but it came out sickly. In fact, the innkeeper himself seemed rather sickly, not exactly unhealthy, but hollow, wan, like a plant that's been moved into the wrong sort of soil and lacking something vital has begun to wilt. Graham noted the difference. The innkeeper's gestures weren't as extravagant, his voice wasn't as deep, even his eyes weren't as bright as they had been a month ago. Their color seemed duller. They were less sea-foam, less green grass than they had been. Now they were like river-weed, like the, the bottom of a green glass bottle, and his hair had been bright before, the color of flame. Now it seemed red, just Red hair color, really. Coat drew back the cloth and looked underneath. The wood was a dark charcoal color with a black grain, heavy as a sheet of iron. Three dark pegs were set above a word chiseled into the wood. Folly, Graham read. Odd name for a sword. Coat nodded, his face carefully blank. How much do I owe you? he asked quietly. Graham thought for a moment. After what you've given me to cover the cost of the wood, 
There was a cunning glimmer in the man's eye. Around one and three. Coat handed over two talents. Keep the rest. It's difficult wood to work with. That it is, Graham said with some satisfaction. Like stone under the saw. Try a chisel like iron. Then after all the shouting was done, I couldn't char it. I noticed that, that, Coat said with a flicker of curiosity, running a finger along the darker groove and letters made in the wood. How did you manage it? Well, Graham said smugly, after wasting half a day, I took it over to the smithy. Me and the boys managed to sear it with a hot iron. Took us better than two hours to get it black. Not a wisp of smoke, but it made a stink like old leather and clover. Damnedest thing. What sort of wood don't burn? Graham waited a minute, but the innkeeper gave no signs of having heard. Where would it, where would you like me to hang it then? Sort of a weird contraction there. Where would he? Maybe where would ye? Sort of. Okay, I don't know. Anyway, where would he like me to hang it then? Uh, it's wood apostrophe e. I, I, I don't know. I assume it's wood ye. Coat roused himself enough to look around the room. You can leave that to me, I think. I haven't quite decided where to put it. Graham left a handful of iron nails and bid the innkeeper good day. Coat remained at the bar, idly running his hands over the wood and the word. Before too long, Bast came out of the kitchen and looked over his teacher's shoulder. There was a long moment of silence, like a tribute given to the dead. Eventually, Bast spoke up. "'May I ask a question, Rushy?' Coat smiled gently. "'Always, Bast. A troublesome question. Those tend to be the only worthwhile kind.' They remained staring at the object on the bar for another silent moment, as if to commit it, commit it to memory. Folly. Bast struggled for a moment opening his mouth, then closing it with a frustrated look, then repeating the process. Out with it, Coat said finally. Yeah, there's nothing worse. It's like, come on, just ask me a question already. Right? So anyway, <clears throat> out with it, Coat said finally. What were you thinking? Bast said with an odd mixture of confusion and concern. Coat was a long while in answering. I tend to think too much, Bast. My greatest successes came from decisions I made when I stopped thinking and simply did what felt right. Even if there was no good explanation for what I did, he smiled wistfully, even if there was a very good reason for me not to do what I did. Bast ran a hand along the side of his face. So you're trying to avoid second-guessing yourself. Coat hesitated. You could say that, he admitted. I could say that, Reshi, Bast said smugly. You, on the other hand, would complicate things needlessly. Coat shrugged and turned his eyes back to the mounting board. Nothing to do but find a place for it, I suppose. Out here? Bast's expression was horrified. Coat grinned wickedly, a measure of vitality coming back into his face. Of course he said, seeming to savor Bast's reaction. He looked speculatively at the walls and pursed his lips. 
Where did you put it, anyway? In my room, Bast admitted, under my bed. Coat nodded distractedly, still looking at the walls. Go get it, then. He made a small shooing gesture with one hand, and Bast hurried off, looking unhappy. The bar was decorated with glittering bottles, and Coat was standing on the now-vacant counter between the two heavy oak barrels when Bast came back into the room, black scabbard swinging loosely from one hand. Coat paused in the act of setting the mounting board atop one of the barrels and cried out in dismay, "'Careful, Bast! You're carrying a lady there, not swinging some wench at a barn dance!' Bast stopped in his tracks and dutifully gathered it up in both hands before walking the rest of the way to the bar. Coat pounded a pair of nails into the wall, twisted some wire, and hung the mounting board firmly on the wall. "'Hand it up, would you?' he asked with an odd catch in his voice. "'Using both hands,' I guess that should be, "'hand it up, would you?' Oh, let's see. "'Hand it up, would you?' Something like that he asked with an odd catch in his voice. Using both hands, Bast held it up to him, looking for a moment like a squire offering up a sword to some bright-armored knight. But there was no knight there, just an innkeeper, just a man in an apron who called himself Coat. He took the sword from Bast and stood upright on the counter behind the bar. He drew the sword without a flourish. It shone a dull gray-white in the room's autumn light. It had the appearance of a new sword. It was not notched or rusted. There were no bright scratches skittering along its dull gray side. But though it was unmarred, it was old. And while it was obviously a sword, it was not a familiar shape. At least no one in this town would have found it familiar. It looked as if an alchemist had distilled a dozen swords, and when the crucible had cooled, this was lying in the bottom, a sword in its pure form. It was slender and graceful. It was deadly as a sharp stone beneath swift water. Coat held it for a moment. His hand did not shake. Then he set the sword on the mounting board, its gray-white metal shone against the dark roa behind it. Oh, that's the, um, that's the wood his chest is made of. That's, uh, that, um, was easily worth gold with just the size of your thumb, but, uh, to have a chest was extravagance. So, what to have a mounting board made of it, then? Who is this guy? Practically got a treasury of just wood. It's, let's see, um, while the handle could be seen, it was dark enough to be almost indistinguishable from the wood. The word beneath it, black against blackness, seemed to reproach. Folly. Coat climbed down, and for a moment he and Bast stood side by side, silently looking up. Bast broke the silence. It is rather striking, he said, as if he regretted the truth. But... He trailed off, trying to find appropriate words. He shuddered. Coat clapped him on the back, oddly cheerful. Don't bother being disturbed on my account. He seemed more lively now, as if his activity lent him energy. I like it. 
he said with sudden conviction, and hung the black scabbard from one of the mounting board's pegs. Then there were things to be done, bottles to be polished and put back in place, lunch to be made, lunch clutter to be cleaned. Things were cheerful for a while in a pleasant, bustling sort of way. Oh, sorry, in a, in a pleasant, bustling way. I added words there. My bad. Uh, the two talked of small matters as they worked, and while they moved around a great deal, it was obvious they were reluctant to finish whatever task they were close to completing, as if they both dreaded the moment when the work would end and the silence would fill the room again. Then, something odd happened. The door opened, and noise poured into the waystone like a gentle wave. People bustled in, talking and dropping bundles of belongings. They chose tables and threw their coats over the backs of chairs. One man, wearing a shirt of heavy metal rings, unbuckled a sword and leaned it against a wall. Two or three wore knives on their belts. Four or five called for drinks. Coat and Bast watched for a moment, then moved smoothly into action. Coat smiled and began pouring drinks. Bast darted outside to see if there were horses that needed stabling. In ten minutes, the inn was a different place. Coins rang on the bar, cheese and fruit were set on platters, on a, and a large copper pot was hung to simmer in the kitchen. Men moved the tables and chairs about to better suit their group of nearly a dozen people. Coat identified them as they came in. Two men and two women, wagoneers, rough from years of being outside and smiling, to be spending a night out in the wind. A night out of the wind, sorry. Three guards with hard eyes, smelling of iron. A tinker with a pot belly and a ready smile, showing his few remaining teeth. Two young men, one sandy-haired, one dark, well-dressed and well-spoken. Travelers, sensible enough to hook up with a larger group for protection on the road. The settling-in period lasted an hour or two. Prices of rooms were dickered over. Friendly arguments started about who slept with whom. Minor necessities were brought in from wagons or saddlebags. Baths were requested and water heated. Hay was taken to the horses and coat topped off the oil in all the lamps. The tinker hurried outside to make use of the remaining daylight. He walked his two-wheel mule cart through the town's streets. Children crowded around, begging for candy and stories and shims. When it became apparent that nothing was going to be handed out, most of them lost interest. They formed a circle with a boy in the middle and started to clap, keeping the beat with a children's song that had been ages old when their grandparents had chanted it. When the hearth fire turns to blue, what to do, what to do, run outside, run and hide. Laughing, the boy in the middle tried to break out of the circle while the other children pushed him back. Tinker, the old man's voice rang out like a bell, pot mender, knife grinder, willow wand, water finder, cut cork, mother leaf, silk scarves off the city streets, writing paper, sweetmeats. This drew the attention of the children. They flocked back to him, making a small parade as he walked down the street, singing, Belt leather, black pepper, fine lace and bright feather, tinker in town, tonight gone tomorrow, working through the evening light. Come, wife, come, daughter, I've a small cloth and rose water. After a couple of minutes, he settled down, or he settled outside the waystone, 
set up his sharpening wheel and began to grind a knife. As the adults began to gather around the old man, the children returned to their game. A girl in the center of the circle put one hand over her eyes and tried to catch the other children as they ran away, clapping and chanting. When his eyes are black as crow, where to go, where to go, near and far, here they are. The tinker dealt with everyone in turn, sometimes two or three at a time. He traded sharp knives for dull ones and a small coin. He sold shears and needles, copper pots, and small bottles that wives hid quickly after buying them. He traded buttons and bags of cinnamon and salt, uh, limes from tinue, and uh, chocolate from tarbine, polished horn from... Sorry, these names are hard. Uh, polished horn from Erue. All the while, the children continued to sing, See a man without a face moves like move like ghosts from place to place. What's their plan? What's their plan? Chandrian, Chandrian. Maybe 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 Chandrian is supposed to rhyme with plan. Chandrian. Huh. Chandrian, Chandrian. Yeah, maybe hmm. It's probably supposed to rhyme. So Chandrian must be. <laughs> Coat guessed that the travelers had been together a month or so, long enough to become comfortable with each other, but not long enough to be squabbling over small things. They smelled of road dust and horses. He breathed it in like perfume. Best of all was the noise, leather creaking, men laughing. The fire cracked and spat. The women flirted. Some even knocked someone even knocked over a chair. For the first time in a long while, there was no silence in the Waystone Inn, or, if there was, it was too faint to be noticed or too well hidden. Coat was in the middle of it all, always moving, like a man tending a large, complex machine, ready with a drink, just as a person called for it. He talked and listened in the right amounts, he laughed at jokes, shook hands, smiled, and whisked coins off the bar as if he truly needed the money. Yeah, as if he truly needed the money. He's he's got a a he's got a display mount for a sword that's made of the most valuable wood in the world and he's got a chest of it upstairs. Yeah, he does not need the money. Anyway, <clears throat> then when the time for songs came and everyone had sung their favorites and still wanted more, Coat led them from behind the bar, clapping to keep a beat. With the fire shining in his hair, he sang Tinker Tanner, more verses than anyone had heard before, and no one minded in the least. Hours later, the common room had a warm, jovial feel to it. Coat was kneeling on the hearth, building up the fire, when someone spoke behind him. Gvoth? The innkeeper turned, wearing a slightly confused smile. Sir? It was one of the well-dressed travelers. He swayed a little. Your quoth. Coat, sir. Coat replied in an indulgent tone that mothers use on children and innkeepers use on drunks. Quoth the bloodless, the man pressed ahead and with dogged persistence of the inebriated, you looked familiar, but I couldn't, I couldn't finger it. He smiled proudly and tapped a finger to his nose. 
Then I heard you sing, and I knew it was you. I heard you in Emra at once. Cried my eyes out afterward. I never heard anything like that before or since. Broke my heart. The young man's sentences grew jumbled as he continued, but his face remained earnest. I knew it couldn't be you, but I thought it was. Even though... Even though... But who else has your hair? He shook his head, trying unsuccessfully to clear it. I saw the place in Imra where you killed him. By the fountain, the cobblestones are all shattered. He frowned and concentrated on the word. Shattered. They say no one can mend them. The sandy-haired man paused again, squinting for focus. He seemed surprised by the innkeeper's reaction. The red-haired man was grinning. Are you saying I look like Kvoth? The Kvoth? I've always thought so myself. I have an engraving of him in, in back. My assistant teases me for it. Would you tell him what you just told me? Coat threw a final log onto the fire and stood. But as he stepped from the hearth, one of his legs twisted beneath him, and he fell heavily to the floor, knocking over a chair. Several of the travelers hurried over, but the innkeeper was already on his feet, waving people back to their seats. No, no, I'm fine. Sorry to startle anyone. In spite of his grin, it was obvious he'd hurt himself. His face was tight with pain, and he leaned heavily on the chairs for support. Took an arrow in the knee on my way through the Eld three summers ago. It gives out every now and then. He grimaced and uh, said wistfully, It's what made me give up on the good life on the road. He reached down to touch his oddly bent leg tenderly. One of the mercenaries spoke up. I'd put a poultice on that, or it'll swell terrible. Coat touched it again and nodded. I think you are wise, sir. He turned to the sandy-haired man who stood swaying slightly by the fireplace. Could you do me a favor, son? The man nodded dumbly. Just close the flue. Coat gestured toward the fireplace. Bast, will you help me upstairs? Bast hurried over and drew Coat's arm around his shoulders. Coat leaned on him with every other step as they made their way through the doorway and up the stairs. Arrow in the leg, Bast asked under his breath. Are you really that embarrassed from taking a little fall? Thank God you're as gullible as they are, Coat said sharply as soon as they were out of sight. He began to curse under his breath as he climbed a few more steps, his knee obviously uninjured. Bast's eyes widened, then narrowed. Coat stopped at the top of the steps and rubbed his eyes. One of them knows who I am, Coat frowned, suspects. Which one? Basque asked with a mix of apprehension and anger. Green shirt, sandy hair. The one nearest to me by the fireplace. Give him something to make him sleep. He's already been drinking. No one will think twice if he happens to pass out. Bast thought briefly. Nightmane? Manka. Bast raised an eyebrow but nodded. Coat straightened. Listen three times, Bast. Bast blinked once, but... And nodded. Coates spoke crisply and cleanly. I was a city-licensed escort from Rallien, wounded while successfully defending a caravan, arrow in right knee, three years ago, summer. A grateful Sealdish merchant gave me money to start an inn. His name is Duolan. We were traveling from Purvis. Mention it casually. Do you have it? 
I hear you three times, Reshi, Bast replied formally. Go. Half an hour later, Bast brought a bowl to his master's room, reassuring him that everything... Yeah, okay, sorry, i got to stop. I, just, I love that little turn of phrase. Listen three times, and I hear you three times. Like, mm, just... I like, I like when they use numbers like that, like three or seven or yeah, whatever. Oh, pardon me. <clears throat> anyway, I just, I, I love that. Just, mm. Okay, anyway, mm. half an hour later, Bast brought a bowl to his master's room, reassuring him that everything was well downstairs. Coat nodded and gave terse instructions that he not be disturbed for the rest of the night. Closing the door behind himself, Bast's expression was worried. He stood at the top of the stairs for some time, trying to think of something he could do. It is hard to say what troubled Bast so much. Coat didn't seem to noticeably change, didn't seem noticeably changed in any way, except perhaps that he moved a little slower, and whatever small spark the night's activity had lit behind his eyes was dimmer now. In fact, it could hardly be seen. In fact, it may not have been there at all. Coat sat in front of the fire and ate his meal mechanically, as if he were simply finding a place inside himself to keep the food. After the last bite, he sat staring into nothing, not remembering what he had eaten or what it tasted like. The fire snapped, making him blink and look around the room. He looked down at his hands, one curled inside the other, resting in his lap. After a moment, he lifted and spread them as if warming them by the fire. They were graceful, with long, delicate fingers. He watched them intently, as if expecting them to do something on their own. Then he lowered them to his lap, one hand lightly cupping the other, and returned to watching the fire. Expressionless, motionless, he sat until there was nothing left but gray ash and dully glowing coals. As he was undressing for bed, the fire flared. The red light traced faint lines across his body, across his back and arms. All the scars were smooth and silver, streaking him like lightning. Like lines of gentle remembering, the flare of flame revealed them all briefly, old wounds and new. All the scars were smooth and silver, except one. The fire flickered and died. Sleep met him like a lover in an empty bed. The travelers left early the next morning. Bast tended to their needs, explaining his master's knee was swollen quite badly and he didn't feel up to taking the stairs so early in the day. Everyone understood except for the sandy-haired merchant's son, who was too groggy to understand much of anything. The guards exchanged smiles and rolled their eyes while the tinker gave an impromptu sermon on the subject of temperance. Bast recommended several unpleasant hangover cures. After they left, Bast tended to the inn, which was no great chore, as there were no customers. Most of his time was spent trying to find ways to amuse himself. Sometime after noon, Coat came down the stairs to find him crushing walnuts on the bar with a heavy leather-bound book. "'Good morning, Reshi,' 
Fast said brightly. Good morning, Bast, said, uh, Coat said. Any news? The Orison boy stopped boy. Stop. Goodness. The Orison boy stopped by. Wanted to know if we needed any mutton. Coat nodded almost as if he had been suspecting the news. How much did you order? Bast made a face. I hate mutton, Reshi. It tastes like wet mittens. Coat shrugged and made his way to the door. I've got some errands to run. Keep an eye on things, will you? I always do. The Waystone, sorry, outside the Waystone Inn, the air lay still and heavy on the empty dirt road that ran through the center of town. The sky was a featureless gray sheet of cloud that looked as if it wanted to rain, but couldn't quite work up the energy. Coat walked across the street to open front, to the open front of the smithy. The smith wore his hair cropped short and his beard thick and bushy. As Coat watched, he carefully drove a pair of nails through a scythe's, a, sorry, a scythe blade's collar. <sighs> Goodness, I can, let me just start that sentence over. As Coat watched, he carefully drove a pair of nails through a scythe blade's collar fixing it firmly onto a curved wooden handle. Hello, Caleb. The smith leaned the scythe up against the wall. What can I do for you, Master Coat? Did the Orison boy stop by your place too? Caleb nodded. Are they still losing sheep? Coat asked. Actually, some of the lost ones finally turned up. Torn up awful, practically shredded. Wolves? Coat asked. The smith shrugged. It's the wrong time of year, but what else would it be? A bear? I guess they're just selling off what they can't watch over properly, them being shorthanded and all. Shorthanded? Had to let their hired man go because of the taxes, and their oldest son took the king's coin early this summer. He's off fighting the rebels in Minap now. Menaras, Coat corrected gently. If you see their boy again, let him know I'll be willing to buy about three halves. I'll do that, Smith gave the innkeeper a knowing look. Is there anything else? Well, Coat looked away, suddenly self-conscious. I was wondering if you have any rod iron lying around, he said, not meeting the Smith's eye. It doesn't have to be anything fancy, mind you, just plain old pig iron would do nicely. Caleb chuckled. I didn't know if you were going to stop by at all. Old Cobb and the rest came by day before yesterday. He walked over to a workbench and lifted up a piece of canvas. I made a couple extras, just in case. Coat picked up a rod of iron about two feet long and swung it casually with one hand. Clever man. I know my business, the smith said smugly. You need anything else? Actually, Coat said, as he settled the, bar, settled the bar of iron comfortably against his shoulder. There is one other thing. Do you have a spare apron and set of forged gloves? Could have, Caleb said hesitantly. Why? There's an old bramble patch behind the inn, Coat nodded in the direction of the waystone. I'm thinking of tearing it up so I can put in a garden next year, but I don't fancy losing half my skin doing it. The smith nodded and gestured for Coat to follow him into the back of the shop. I've got my old set, he said, as he dug out a pair of heavy gloves and a stiff leather apron. 
both were charred dark in places and stained with grease. They're not pretty, but they'll keep the worst of it off you, I suppose. What are they worth to you? Coat asked, reaching for his purse. The smith shook his head. A jot would be a great plenty. They're no good to me or the, or the boy. The innkeeper handed over a coin, and the smith stuffed them into an old burlap sack. You sure you want to do it now? The smith asked. We haven't had rain in a while. The ground will be softer after the spring thaw. Coat shrugged. My granda always told me that fall's the time to root up something you don't want coming back to trouble you. Coat mimicked the quaver of an old, man, old man's voice. Things are too full of life in the spring months. In the summer, they're too strong and won't let go. Autumn. He looked around at the changing leaves on the trees. Autumn's the time. In autumn, everything is tired and ready to die. Oh, man. And, and this is, of course, the man who is waiting to die. So, anyway... Later that afternoon, Cote sent Bast to catch up on his sleep. Then he moved listlessly around the inn, doing small jobs left over from the night before. There were no customers. When evening finally came, he lit the lamps and began to page disinterestedly through a book. Fall was supposed to be the year's busiest time, but travelers were scarce lately. Cote knew with bleak certainty how long winter would be. He closed the inn early, something he had never done before. He didn't bother sweeping. The floor didn't need it. He didn't need... He didn't wash the tables or the bar. None had been used. He polished a bottle or two, locked the door, and went to bed. There was no one around to notice the difference. No one except Bast, who watched his master, and worried, and waited. How long is this chapter here? <sighs> hmm. I don't know. When I was a kid, and we wanted my mom to read another chapter, we would, uh, I, don't, I don't know how it started exactly, but, you know, the phrase, ah, oh, well, if you twist my arm, I, I suppose I'll have to, you know, like, because, ah, well, whatever, uh, I don't know how it started exactly, you know, being young as I was, but when we wanted my mom to read another chapter, we would, we would mime twisting her arm, because we usually worked close enough to uh, actually twist her arm at that point. We would be sprawled along the floor or uh, lying down on the couch uh, while she was over on the love seat or something like that. She would be by the lamp and we would be over, leaned up against the couch, uh, sitting on the floor or just on the floor. <laughs> laying flat or something like that and well sometimes she would indulge us if the next chapter wouldn't be too long but 
Sometimes she would say, ah, no, the next chapter is 12 pages. And That's all for tonight. Or, oh, no, you've already twisted my arm three times and we're done. And <laughs> uh, She would make a good show of, uh, when she was going to accept, she would make a good show of accepting our, our miming, arm twisting by miming, having her arm twisted. So she would say, oh, oh, ah, oh, okay, 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 one more chapter. And usually that would be because she also wanted to read the next chapter and didn't want to read ahead of us. She was very good-natured that way and wouldn't read ahead. But I think, I think two chapters will do for tonight. We've read chapter two and chapter three. That was... Let's see, chapter two was... Beautiful day, and chapter three was um, wood and word. So, I suppose that refers to the mounting board for the sword folly. And you know, given what that um, man was saying, I saw the cobblestones, they were shattered. I saw the place where you killed him, and all that. From from apparently Kvoth. It's uh, K V O T H. Kvoth. Wait, is it T H E? It might be T H E. Hang on, gotta go back and look. Oh, yeah, it's T H E. K V O T H E. Kvoth. It's, um, I've read this book before, so I know uh, later on it specifies that. You pronounce it like the word quoth. But, but uh, anyway, quoth. So quoth. Um, he's been rec recognized apparently as a musician who sang in a city called, or a town called uh, Imre, which is, or Imre, I'm not sure, Imre, Imre maybe? I-M-R-E. Imre. Um... Apparently, has uh, sang well enough to um, bring tears to that traveler's eyes, and then um, he. Oh, sorry. <sighs> it is bedtime after all. <laughs> anyway, um, he has apparently been known for his prowess in combat. So, um, the sword makes a bit of sense, given that. Anyway. It makes sense that he would be the sort of person who had seen maybe too many things. Being young and not even 30 and having become a living legend of sorts has got to wear on a person. And who knows what what secrets he hides. I suppose given that we were introduced to a character named Chronicler and the series is called The King Killer Chronicles perhaps Kvoth killed a king and perhaps the Chronicler will inform us more to that point. 
However, it's time to go to bed. So, until tomorrow, this has been Books at Bedtime. Good night.